Shut up and sit down. Facebook for a while. I I need to back away from the Facebook, the book of faces in me, because I, damn, y'all, just, just damn. Can you guys hear me? Is my shit plugged in properly? Okay. Uh, just damn. Oh, oh. Anyways. Anyways. Get Jilly on the air before I go off on something that we were fussing at earlier today because that jackass came back and now he's praying for yep. us. But someone, someone schooled him though. Yeah, someone did school him. I think that's her husband. No, um, the other guy. Oh, different last I need name. to back up. I need to back up then. I'll, I'll read that later. But I did tell him that I didn't want him to um, bother his imaginary friend to pray for me (laughs) we don't need that kind of interference (laughs) I clicked on works in progress is in a chat room and I'm like sitting here looking at it going I don't understand what's wrong with the chat room (laughs) because it's that kind of day that's my new page isn't it pretty it is although I get errors when I click on the thingies I just clicked that one. Huh. Oh, well. Maybe it's only for you. That's Kira-only content. I made it public. Maybe not. I'll figure that out. (laughs) I'll figure that out later. (laughs) I had good intentions. I didn't mean to be that much of a cock tease. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's in a different... he, He started a different comment thread ah okay so and it, it's the first reply to his new comment thread on that thingy with the guy who came in and said now wait a minute <laughs> it seems like you're the bad guy here <laughs> <laughs> he's like you know the thing is is um sometimes when you have facebook friends um you encounter members of their family that are uh that are quite frankly terrible um and um, they they exhibit some really toxic, narcissistic, um, disgusting behaviors. And I'm at that point in my life where I can't let that go. And so it becomes this source of irritation. And it's kind of like having a a pebble in your shoe all day. <laughs> yeah. I just want to go over there and punch her family members in the face. <laughs> mm-hmm. Especially, I mean, this is this is a because they're not just being horrible to to me or Kira or somebody else, right? They're being horrible to their family member, and you know, especially when you're part of this community and you see you know people, and you know that they're lovely people and that they've got a good heart and they you know they're very generous and 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 they are saying something fairly benign, you know, just expressing a view, and 
and people who are supposed to care for, about and love them and I suppose, you know, accept them are saying horrible things to them. It's really hard not to just <laughs> want to, you know, that kind of that's like mama bear instinct comes up and it's like, really? This is your family member. You're supposed to be loving them. Why aren't you acting better? I want to kick him in the dick. That's what I want to do. I was just livid. <laughs> There's that too. Dick kicking would not be a bad idea. Anyways, uh, anyway, you know, it's just, it's terrible. It's, um, yeah, I think I'm going to have to avoid my feed for a few days if I want to ever calm down again. Um, yeah, it's been it's ugly. Like messenger and, and log in to, to, to play my game or whatever. And then, and then move on and not look at my feed at all. And I'm sorry, I'm going to miss, I'm going to miss things that are, but I just, I can't. It's getting me so pissed off. Well, I actually have two separate profiles. I um, have a fandom profile and I have a family profile. And I haven't logged into my family profile since um, the election. Um, because I just can't. Well, just, I, I, haven't, you know, I haven't logged in and easily more than a year and then I logged in I want to say it was a couple weeks ago just on a whim I just decided to log into the family Facebook thing and I log in and the first thing at the top of my page is it had my parents name my parents names and it said that they've checked in safe at the the tornado in in their city and I went there's a tornado (laughs) what do you mean there's a tornado wait 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 wait, what (laughs) (laughs) a tornado yeah, and I mean, like, and so, you know, I'm, like, sending my mom a question. I'm, like, are you okay? What the hell's going on? Was there a tornado? There must have been a tornado. You actually checked it on Facebook that you were okay. She said, and she sent me a picture from, they live on a high-rise, but she sent me a picture from their window. You could actually see where some of the tornado damage was from their window. I was, like, oh, well, I'm glad you're okay. <laughs> that was close. You couldn't have called? I had to, That's hilarious. I had to find out from Facebook. I had to find out from Facebook that I never log into that you're okay. Uh, and that there was a tornado. I mean, I didn't know that either. <laughs> that is a nice feature, though, because I have to say, is you've got Facebook on your phone, you've got the app, you go to the app. If they know there's been a disaster in your area, they'll ask if you want to check in safe. And it's a really useful way of letting a lot of people know that you're okay. So that, Yeah. Because you, you may not be able to reach out or even be able to post, but you might be able to just click that "Yes, I'm fine" button. So it's a really useful feature. I gotta say that I'm, I really like that feature of Facebook. But for as much as I just like Facebook, many a day, I like that particular feature. I carry. Um, uh, I have a keychain um, that has mace on it. You know, just a little mace, just a little can of mace. Um, and I'm in the pharmacy. Yeah, I'm in the pharmacy, um, and in line, and this man, um, I guess he's trying to chat me up, says, uh, "Why on earth are you carrying mace?" And before I could help myself, I, not that I really tried to help myself, 
I said, because I don't like it when strange men talk to me. And the clerk snorted a little, and she, like she couldn't help herself. <laughs> and he said, well, that's not, that's not very sociable. I said, well, I'm not very sociable. Pretty little lady like you. I said, dude, do you want me to mace you in the middle of, of Walgreens? Is that what you want to happen? Back the fuck off. <laughs> I want that to happen. Could you film it, please? <laughs> if there is anything I hate more in this world, it could be being called a little lady. I get it. I am 5'3". I get it. I don't need it in my face every day. Well, that could just be, I think that's just a patronizing man expression because I get called little lady and I'm 5'10". So, well, I take it real damn um, personal. <laughs> yeah, I, I just, I just kind of get, I guess kind of my resting bitch face makes an appearance. And I was like, really? Really? You're going to condescend to me? I'm taller than you. sitting at my sister's desk it's all everything's different <laughs> that can be disconcerting I don't like different <laughs> I have to think about different I'll do something badly so I can keep things the same <laughs> so that's, uncom- that's uncomfortable but it's familiar so keep going <laughs> I do carry mace I, I also um, have a weapon um, and he's lucky I didn't have that, or I might have let him see the handle of it out of my purse. Um, <laughs> it was in the car. Uh, and I just, so at one point I turned and when I was paying and he saw my wedding ring and he said, you could have just told me you were married. I said, motherfucker, it does not matter if I'm married or not. Your attention was unwelcome by me. Whether it is welcome or not by my husband, even the issue in this situation here. I, <laughs> it's just been a week or two of men... On, and in cyberspace, making me mad. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, you know, I think yeah. it could also be that because of the political climate and, and what's happening and what happened with the Supreme Court, it's just I'm really um, sensitive to men not respecting me and respecting my space. Let some man spread near me. And I... I can't guarantee my reaction to man spreading right now. <laughs> like, look, look, motherfucker, you need to you need to take up less space. I'm just saying, because right now my my indignation and my anger is taking up all the available space in this area, so we can't afford for your sprawl. I just. 
if my anger could be bottled, NASA could use it to fly to Mars tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Harness the power of the fury and our energy crisis is solved. (laughs) Anyways, tonight we're going to talk about um, moving characters into other fandoms. Uh, Or even just dramatically different circumstances. Um, Outside of their canon setting. And what you can do to um, mitigate, uh, uh, what's the right term, Um, issues and to keep their characterization on point. (laughs) And that does not mean make them the same. Because actually the worst, I find the biggest characterizations in, is when they're in a completely different circumstances, a completely different environment, or they've had some horrible thing happen, and they behave exactly the same. So if it's, you know, specifically like in the case of lighthearted characters, when, you know, the situation is dire um, or they've been through a lot of trauma that they behave, then they become like a caricature. That's not characterization. That's caricaturization, I guess. So it, it just, you have to let the characters evolve, adapt to the situation they're in, not just keep them static and flat. That's, that's actually a sin I think that most shows make, is especially on the big networks, is they don't let the characters evolve. They just stay very static. You know, shit happens, but they don't grow. <clears throat> Abby stays Ever. the same. She got, she devolved, actually. Um, until the Abby who left the show. For the actress. Hmm? It had to be boring as fuck for the actress. To have no growth I would think for so. all those years. And you get to I the point where so. you're I mean, looking like they're just checking in for a paycheck. And then every once in a while, I mean, I would see like off season when they would do interviews in like CBS magazine or TV Guide or whatever with, um, you know, characters. And they would talk to like Michael Wedley and like year after year after year, I want to say like five or six years running, they asked him what's going to be coming up for Tony next year. And he would say, you know, Ted's coming into his own next year. We're going to see a lot of changes for Tony next year. Da, 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 da. And I think the way I interpreted that, since there never were any real big changes for Tony, I interpreted that as they were leading him on with big changes yeah. for Tony. He I was saying, that- I need you, to, I need, I need this character to evolve and they were saying, yeah, yeah, we're going to do big things for him next year. And then they get the scripts and there'd be nothing different. And I think yeah. he probably said that enough of that. But it was just weird that there was the same tone year over year over year in interviews. And and then you saw none of that in the show. And then he finally and then he finally left. And he, one of the comments he made in some interview, I don't remember if it was on, it might have been even on Colbert, like on his last, you know, the night the last, episode aired, that there was just nowhere for the character to go at that point, that there was nothing they could do but take him out of the show. And that was true. They had boxed that character in the corner. So he said he left because there was nothing, nowhere for the character to be. I mean, they missed their window to evolve that character. And it's too bad. I think think ultimately it will be the downfall of the show. But um, I haven't watched it since Michael Butterloo left. I, see, I mean, I had family who watch all, watches the the franchise, so I see episodes now and then. Um, usually it's like I'm sitting on the couch reading or writing while they're watching 
uh, NCIS. And like the first time I saw an episode, I saw a scene with Gibbs after he had left. I was like, who is that pod person? What's with the suit and the, the nice behavior and, and treating his team well? I don't understand this. Did he get a head injury again? Again, yeah. I was like, no, he's been like that since the new season started. I was like, oh, that's really dickish. All it took was Tony leaving for him to be a decent person. I don't know that I can deal. <laughs> that really pisses me off. So, so I catch him. Well, he I, had I to be a I... decent person at that point because um, otherwise, because cause in a lot of ways, the character of Zenozo was a buffer for Gibbs. And without mm-hmm. him, uh, Gibbs's behavior uh, would have quickly become outright abusive, overtly yeah. abusive, instead of subversively abusive. So, I mean, <laughs> um, but you know, a lot of these shows, the characters really just stay very static, and you don't have to watch them. Just like if you catch a scene here or there, you're like, "Wow, that's the same way he behaved." In in season one or whatever, and like I I stopped watching Hawaii Five O when Danny had the, the affair, and um, but I I stayed current on a lot of the plot line because my family were big fans of the the show for a long time. They stopped watching it too. My sister stopped watching it when um, Grace Park and Daniel uh, yeah, I'm not his last name. Uh, yeah, um, when when he when they left, so she's she's done with it now. But what the occasional episode I would see, I would see in passing, it would be kind of like, boy, Danny and and Steve, they're they're you know, they snipe more. I don't think that's the kind of evolution that I'm thinking of for character evolution. Because I didn't find their sniping. I know I know that people really like it, but I actually found it tiresome. The constant arguing between them. A little bit of arguing is fine. A little bit, especially if it's in the, if it's truly banter. But it it just went too far with them. It's like everything was a conflict, and it was just irritating to me. Anyway, yes, Daniel Day Kim, or is it Day Kim? I think it's Die. But anyway, um, so that's. That's like one side of the coin is to not let your characters evolve in their situation. And when you throw characters, you know, wildly outside of their canon circumstances, whether it's putting them in a different fandom, cross, whether you're doing a crossover or you're doing a fusion or whatever, um, not letting them evolve is one problem. But the other side of it, which was more what we were going to talk about tonight, was evolving them in ways where they're completely unrecognizable. And I'm guilty of this. In which case you're just... Mm, What? Which which, which story? Synthetic. Oh, well... I I mean, I haven't read it in a while, but my... I I didn't feel like... I don't know that I felt like... I mean, you you would have a better vibe for it because you were the writer, but I don't, I don't feel like I saw enough of it to feel like they were wildly different. John seemed more different than Rodney I just, did. I put, I shoved fandom characters into roles I created um, and, and made them fit 
and it was a terrible fit. That's what it boils down to. And I should have just, um, I had this list of characters that I needed on the ship. It was more like positions. I need, I need this. I need this. I need an environmental. I need a psychologist. And I started putting these characters into these roles, um, and it was just a clusterfuck. Because the thing is, is that normally in fandom, I build a story around my characters. But when it came to synthetic, I um, I took a process that I normally do in original fiction, which is I build a story, I build a foundation of my world, and then I build characters. Um, and I tried to rebuild fandom characters into that situation. And it was just a bad fit. And sometimes you don't know yeah. you're in a bad fit until you're writing. Yeah. But, I mean, that was a case of where, but you you spotted that and you went, um, eh, no. And yeah. you you had to stop because sometimes, I mean, sometimes some things are a hard stop for you. You're like, whoa, that's just not working. Um, yeah, sometimes you do take the character so far from what, I mean, sometimes it works, though, and sometimes it doesn't. Like, um, in terms of taking characters really far from their canon circumstances, um, one of my favorite fusions ever is um, Fate Protects Fools, Small Children and Ships Named Valor, which by some Oh, it's a great story. Huh? Yeah, it's a, a, it's, you know, NCIS cast in the um, Star Trek, taking taking it, in positions in the Star Trek universe, Gibbs is the, is the ship captain of the ship Valor, the USS um, Valor. Um, Tony's a trill. Um, I, I I can't remember who the security officer was. I want to say maybe it was Ziva, or no, Jenny was the security officer. Um, anyway, so everybody had everybody was plugged into a role, and sometimes that kind of thing can really backfire where the characters just don't seem like the characters anymore. But in that, in that particularly with the main few characters, which were Steve McGarrett, um, Tony and Gibbs, they all really resonated as being themselves. Um, Not like Tony Dinoza that we know from the thing, but Tony who, who has a good sense of humor and kind of is fearless and, and, and is willing to go put put it all out there for things he believes in. And um, Steve, who's a badass and uh, is, is as likely to blow things up as anything else. And Gibbs, who's a hard ass, but uh, takes taking care of his people and, and his ship very personally. I mean, everybody was super recognizable um, in their core traits, and yet they were very different too. I mean, Tony was with a trill, which I thought was a really interesting decision. Uh, so you actually had the two personalities there. And the trill, you could you could kind of tell the trill had had an effect. You, you, I mean, Sunrider did a really good job of of showing in without actually blatantly saying it how Tony had evolved and changed once he had this this the trill with him. So it, it just it was a brilliantly done fusion of the NCIS characters into the, the Star Trek universe. Um, 
But I mean, it's off. As I would say, that, that kind of thing goes wrong more often than it goes right, which is why I suggested that we talk about this tonight because a lot of people are going to be doing stuff like that, is taking their characters way outside their canon circumstances. And what do you do when they are in? We're talking about November here. And some people might right. be doing it for the quantum bang. I don't know. Some people may just be really. Um, I'm sure somebody will grab a link for you, Edie. Uh, it's a brilliant story. I, I can't recommend it enough. I mean, Sunriders are brilliant, brilliant author anyway. Um, it's on AO3. Yeah. I really like Sunriders' work. Um, I especially love um, the Hobbit work that she's yeah. done. Um, yeah, and the Ash was yeah, brilliant. Oh. She did didn't, oh. didn't she didn't the the Sunrider do the carving? Didn't yes. didn't Sunrider do carving? Yeah, but the, but the oak also, and the ash was just like, boom. It's like whoa, whoa, dude. I I, I can't even. I mean that 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 was a total. Um, I sometimes a fan fiction, at least for me, satisfies me so immensely on a trope that I don't feel the need to explore it myself. <laughs> uh, right. That's what that did I'm like with, okay. with the sentinel. Hobbit Sentinel for me is like it's done. I feel like it's done. Right. Not that I wouldn't read it if somebody else wrote it, you know, if it was good. But it was like I read that, and it was like getting really good canon. It was like, whoa, don't mess with that. <laughs> so Without anything I, else. I never, Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, good job. Thank you, Sunrider. That was that completely satisfied my need to read the Sentinel in in the Hobbit. It was it was perfect. Um, but yeah, I mean, sometimes like I was talking about it in one of the, the uh, Facebook groups I belong to. Um, they asked me um, if I had some favorites in a particular trope, and said no. And I said that's the reason why I write it so much because no one <laughs> wrote anything that I really, really enjoyed. And when I um, come across a trope or you know something in fandom that I'm not getting, I end up writing it a lot. To satisfy that need in myself to get this thing, you know. Tony leaves. <laughs> Tony leaves a lot. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to be leaving and leaving and leaving. Sometimes he's left before the story even starts, but he's still gone. <laughs> <laughs> I think at some point in fandom, Tony Dinozo became. Um, one of those characters um, that is kind of like he's in um, uh, one of those TV movies of the week where um, you want to put him in one of those domestic survivor underground um, networks. (laughs) 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 Getting away from his abusers. It's like, we're going to take you underground. (laughs) You're going to be okay, Tony. We're just put you in other fandoms until we find you a safe place, get you the witness protection. You're probably going to wind up in Hawaii. Um, and, but don't and worry, case of hot. I mean, I read a lot of really good NCIS stories before I started writing in NCIS. Really good stories. And this is not a diss on these stories at all because I immensely enjoyed them. But I got, I got full – Full satisfaction. Full. I got fully 
you know, I, I fully experienced the breadth of Tony being at NCIS and getting over his issues with Gibbs and getting together with Gibbs and getting over his issues with the team and staying with the team and da 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 da. I got I got that. I got that. That that was done. It was it was on lock. Other people had done it. What I wasn't getting like what I wasn't getting that I really wanted really a lot of meat was him saying double birding that whole situation and saying no. Because sometimes you do work out a difficult situation and you you try to make it better, but sometimes you just go, fuck this. This just needs to be raised to the ground and we need to start over. And I wasn't getting I'm enough out. of that. I wasn't getting that in a way that satisfied me, which is why I um, – which is why I uh, decided to write it myself. And and my Tony Lee's, I mean, not being with Gibbs, because I got a lot of reps from people at the time when I first started writing of stories where Tony leaves and then gets together with Gibbs. And I'm like, I think you're missing the point. <laughs> I'm looking for the big, you know, I'm looking for Nuke It From Orbit. It's the only way to be sure. And Gibbs is a xenomorph. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Ellie asks, so when you're placing characters in a different fandom, how do you go about breaking them down to determine what key elements of the characters that need to be kept? Well, if you look at a character like um, Dinozo, um, specifically because we were talking about him already, uh, you look at his uh, his his humor, his... Um, his grace under pressure, his um, his demeanor, his his the way he dresses. Uh, you look at the way he deflects um, personal situations away from himself. Um, mm-hmm. You you look at his, his language in- patterns. Uh, his intuitive leaps. His intuitive leaps. Puzzle solver. His, that's the way when you look at the way his brain works, he is a puzzle solver. Um, so you take their key traits, and sometimes it helps to write them down. Um, just you know, give just give yourself a really good look at the character. You have their key traits, and then you move them into new circumstances and see what new traits survive. I think a really good example of this would be the Hard Prayer. It's a McKay. It's um, um, it's a mixed ship fic, and there's been an apocalypse, and John and Rodney are survivors, and they find each other. Um, and they've been stripped down basically by their circumstances, and when you meet Rodney, he's a little paranoid about food, obviously. Um. He doesn't have any medication to help himself or any medical if he comes across an allergy. So he's he's a little paranoid. He's using technology to to, to make his way towards Cheyenne Mountain. Um, and so, but Rodney's been kind of stripped bare, and and he's vulnerable. And when he meets John, he kind of latches on to John because John, on the other side, has stripped down in another way. Um, in that he's uh, he's focused on survival, and so he's in survival mode, and he's very focused about 
um, getting through the day, and he takes Rodney's mission for his own. When Rodney says, I'm going to Cheyenne Mountain because I think there are people there, John's like, okay, we're, we're going to go to Cheyenne Mountain. This is what we're going to do. And then when it got to the, you know, the wire and things got difficult and there was an injury, John went and found a helicopter <laughs> and flew their asses to Cheyenne Mountain because he's very mission-oriented. So when you look at their circumstances, it's vastly different from canon. But the author stripped them down because of their circumstances. But they were uniquely them. And I think Willow just put a, a, a link in the... Um, uh, it is, yeah. For the Hard Prayer. That is, that is. It's the Hard Prayer by Rihanna. Rihanna it's on um, AO3. Uh, I highly recommend that you read it for the characterizations. I think it really pulls it. Um, and I'll put a link in the podcast for those of you who are listening to this historically. I thought I mentioned something. Somebody mentioned in the in the chat room. Um, and I'm not trying to like. I'm just using this as an, an example of something. It's they called out one of Tony's core traits as being his masks and not revealing his true self. I actually would not call that a core trait. I would call that a a, a function of his environment. Um, and I and it, I think it's actually probably a little bit more of a canon interpretation of the. I mean, I'm sorry, a fanon interpretation of the. Um, inconsistencies we see in his character over the years because they did contradict his character a lot. I mean, he was un- he's unruffleable under fire. Um, he can shoot men in the head at a run. He can handle himself calmly when he's locked in a, a metal box in the winter with people firing, you know, automatic weapons at him. And then out of the blue, he'll get hysterical. Um, something really stupid um in, in in not i'm not talking about like pretending he's hysterical i mean there was there was an episode where they were like a bunch of directors of federal agencies or something and tony was acting like a drunk bimbo around these directors it was just absurd uh, so i think that the I think we've interpreted this mask thing and not revealing himself. I do think the deflection and not getting revealing his true self has become a core trait. I think that was at least that's how I interpret the way he kind of doesn't reveal personal stuff. It's a deflection, um, not wanting to get personal at work, that kind of thing, truly personal. That could be kind of core. But that the whole mask thing is probably more a function of his environment. And so you put him in a different environment, and I don't know that the mask thing makes a lot of sense for it to carry over. It depending upon when you move him into his environment. If he's always been in another environment, it doesn't really make a lot of sense for him to be hiding him tr- his true self behind a bunch of carefully constructed masks. So we've talked about three picks so far, right? The oak and the ash, the hard prayer, and... Fate protects fools. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay, I was making a list for the for the podcast for later. <clears throat> um, there is a story in NCIS fandom called it's called the Burning Mask. I cannot remember the name. I know I know that the story is called. I cannot remember the name of the author. Um, but the story specifically is about. Tony hitting this threshold of where he can't pretend to not, he can't keep up this, he can't keep up the masks at work anymore. Um, Jules Monster? Yes. The Burning Mask by Jules Monster. 
it's kind of it's a bit more. I mean, it's not quite a character study because it's not it's not enough it's not enough in Tony's point of view. It's a lot in Gibbs' point of view, as I recall it anyway. But it is an interesting. I thought it was it, it was really always very memorable for me in the regard in that regard about him, um, the persona he had put on for work. That it was part of the reason why he changed jobs so frequently is because he would start having a hard time maintaining the, his persona. And being on all the time because it's exhausting to be on all the time. Um, if you've ever had to work or be in an environment a lot where you have to, you know, be different than is comfortable for you, that like being customer on, service. Yeah, it's it's tiring. I mean, people's like, you know, like you know, you could be on the phone all day and go home and be exhausted, and you know, people are like, how could you be tired sitting on your butt all day? It's like because it's exhausting to pretend to be something you aren't. You know, you're having a bad day and you're half, you have no choice but to be nice, no choice but to be cheerful, no choice but to be helpful because that's what you're paid to do. And if you're in an environment where you're on 24-7, which is what people who do undercover work, that's why, that's why people can't be undercover for years and years and years. It doesn't work. You, 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 you'd start to slip, you know. Um, in, in a bad way, it would be bad for you mentally to, uh, what do they say? It's like 18 months to two years is like the healthy maximum for somebody to do a long-term undercover. I've got mm-hmm. some studies about this. So I, when I read, when I read sick where someone's undercover for 10 years and they're fine, I just kind of laugh. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Somebody can be undercover for that long. And the sick ninja has found it. Um, But yeah, oh yeah, I found it too. Where... Sorry, I was I put it on my list, but didn't put it in the chat room. <laughs> I'm an asshole. But <laughs> but Tony, it, it is an interesting interesting look at what happened to him when he's in an environment he doesn't want to leave, but he can't maintain his masks anymore. And that's why she called it the burning mask. And uh, it's a really good story. And yes, if you change Tony's background, um, we, we we talked about this. We, we did some discussions about this in the Whole New World Challenge, where when you put somebody in a whole new world, figuring out what's core to them. Um, is is really important, and some characters it's easier than others. So, for instance, with a character like Rodney McKay, who is extremely smart. It is easier to, to at least somewhat make them recognizable because they've got this core thing that is so so recognizable and so integral. Um, he's sarcastic and he's smart, right? I mean, there's more to Rodney than that, but that's a really recognizable thing. Um, it's a smart. He also has some self-esteem uh, issues that um, that that show up in weird ways. Yeah. But those could be learned. They may not be there. And then if he, in his, if you if really put him in a whole new world, those mm-hmm. self-esteem issues could be worse or they could be better. Cause I tend to think with a, somebody that smart, any kind of self-esteem issues are, are learned. They're not like inherent. I think they come from, this is one of the reasons why I write him as an abused child, that they come from a um, a traumatic childhood. Uh, because the thing is, is I, I have known a lot of profoundly smart people, and um, 
this is going to seem really weird, but what I noticed about really, 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 really smart people is that um, childhood can be a blur when it's normal, but when it's not normal, it kind of resonates. And it resonates more with profoundly intelligent people than it does with the rest of us. There's a, I mean, it's a brain quirk. Um, And it could go back to that idea that sometimes, you know, that there's this theory that really, 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 really smart people kind of have an expiration date mentally. (laughs) 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 That they're going to flip a switch and go a little crazy eventually, you know. But I've also, um, uh, from experience, know that people who um, are very intelligent also um, suffer bouts of depression um, and um, uh, phobias, OCD, you know, insomnia. And I think in different, different from Rodney, I think I always figured Tony was very, very smart in a completely different way from Rodney. He has more of an intuitive genius than um, that kind of like applied genius that Rodney has. Um, that's how Tony can make those kind of those kind of leaps that he does. And, in, and that's canon that he makes. Sometimes he would peg who it was with nothing to back it up. But there's usually something to back it up. He just hasn't identified it yet. I plotted a story. I haven't started working on it. I just did the plotting for it where Tony um, is a PI in New York. And every once in a while, he winds up working with Sherlock Holmes on a case. And Sherlock can't stand it because he and Tony often come to the same conclusions. But Tony can't explain how he got there until he really takes time <laughs> to take it apart. And he said he's an abstract thinker. And Sherlock is, is the deductive thinker. Everything is a logical step. And that's how he, that's how he calls, what he calls him the abstract thinker. He doesn't even call him Tony. Um, oh, he's that abstract thinker. And it, they drive each other crazy. They drive each other absolutely batshit <laughs> insane because they, they both are very effective in what they do, but they do it completely differently. And, and it's like they, they, they can't even really learn from each other because their brains work too differently. And there's a, there's a place for that. There's a, there's a reason, you know, there's a reason for people to have their brains work very differently. Um, different kinds of genius. I mean, that's how the world, how the world's evolved the way it has, because we don't all have the same kind of smarts. Or the same priorities. Right. But as Sherlock is, is his priority is to not only figure out, the mystery, but to know how he figured out, how he figured out. Tony doesn't care how he knows. He just knows. He just wants to get there. He just wants to solve the problem and move on. He doesn't particularly interested in explaining how he got from point A to point B. For Tony. Mm-hmm. But for Lock Holmes, it's the trip. Yeah. It's learning all those things that he needs to put the puzzle together. And so his journey is the point. And for Tony, it's, yeah, it's what, it's the end game. So it, 
it's just something to consider when you're working with your characters is what, how would it translate if your character, whatever their trait is, whatever that core trait, core traits of them, how does that translate if they were born female? How does that translate if they never went in, you know, no one ever, never went into, you know, law enforcement? Um, there's a few stories, um, more, there's more than I've read, but there are a few where, like, Tony is a, um, an actor. He went into acting after football instead of going to the police academy. Um, I would have to think that a pivotal moment wouldn't have happened, which was probably the fire the, where he rescued that kid. Um, but anyway, you, I mean, you could certainly make the case. I mean, he's a young, attractive, dynamic. He was probably being scouted by proteins. So, I mean, you could easily make the case that he would, could go that direction. Um, and it's like, well, how would he be different personality if he went that direction instead of going becoming a cop? And I think it's, I think it's a really you know, valid thing to explore. It's just it's a it's a it's a different thing to do is to figure out. Like I said, if if there we we could look back and try to find some links to the podcast from when we did the whole new world challenge because we talked a lot mm-hmm. about character evolution back then. Um. And that was really important because everybody had to put their character in a new world. The character could not be in their canon setting in that challenge. So it was more than what we're doing in November. Um, either your character had to be in an original world or they had to be in a complete new world. None of their canon circumstances could exist. So you had to evolve them. In November, you might just be letting their canon backstory still be there. But like in my case, I'm putting my character into the Marvel universe, but the Marvel universe is like just a layer over the contemporary universe of NCIS. I'm not removing the NCIS layer, which is less of a challenge than just having Tony grow up in the MCU with no NCIS. So it's very different. It's like an apples and oranges thing as to how you evolve that character. Because evolving a character, Tony, who in my story will be working for Homeland Security um, and then ultimately goes, well, he actually ultimately probably goes live on Asgard, but making that evolution, he still had the same basic upbringing. So figuring out how things change for him and stepping through that process and how would these events, and that is what it is. It is just sit down and think about it. It's This is what happened. This is what he did. This is when, this is how it evolved. This is how it changed him. This is why he would do this differently, but this is the same. And it, I don't think there is a magic formula other than sit down and think about it and step through it. It really is a step through it and think about it kind of thing. Um, I talk to people a lot who want like a magic formula for how to do, you know, like they want a book that talks about how to take an established character and evolve them. And I just, I mean, there are lots of books on characterization, but I don't think that particular book exists. Because <laughs> it's a very fandom unique problem. Wouldn't you say? Am I yeah, not thinking I mean, of something? No, I mean, yeah. I mean, that fandom is the only place that it happens. Um but I think it also has – well, maybe not. I mean, because if you're someone who's going to be moving into um, professional writing and you are writing a long-term series, 
you need the ability to evolve your character over um, yeah. stories. Or if you're a writer going into, say, a TV show that's very well established, um, you need the ability to grasp the characters that are as they're currently written and hopefully foresee um, future circumstances for them. Um, but those are pretty unique circumstances. Yeah. And I don't think there's really, I mean, there's, like I said, books on characterization will help, but this whole process of evolving a character. Um, in fandom is, is, is pretty unique. There's really no magic bullet. There's no formula other than figure out what your character traits are and sit down. And so an example um, of where I did this was in, it'll be a terrible example if you haven't read it, but in the Teen Wolf story I did for EAD where Tony is, he's a, he's a special agent in charge at the FBI. Um, and he is, but and then he becomes an assistant director. Very, you know, that's right at the beginning of the story. So I was like, well, what the process I went through with that was that Tony's life was basically on pace, except for finding out about supernatural. But he said no to it because you know he finds out about supernatural when he's in his late teens, and it freaks him out. He doesn't want anything to do with it. His mother's family, for good reason actually that he doesn't know yet, hasn't had anything to do with him his whole life and all of a sudden they turn up and want him to become a hunter and he basically you know heard him out and then gave him the double bird and went back to his life but other than that you know things basically are pretty much the same except for one and it wasn't even the supernatural that is what put him on a different course it was finding out that he had a sister and I thought okay so I stepped through what is that like Tony suddenly has close nuclear family who likes him, who is invested in him and doesn't want something crazy from him, like come hunt werewolves for a living. <laughs> and what would that, what would that do? What would that be like for him to have a base, something stable? Because that's one of the things that I've always felt was um, something you, if you're going to give, anytime you give Tony like a good support structure, you have to account for that things that NCIS are going to have gone differently. Um, because he, I, I honestly believe he put up with so much at NCIS because he didn't have that. He, NCIS was everything to him. And I think, and the line, I think I wrote this in a story that you're something like, I don't remember exactly how I phrased it, but it was something like, mm. <sighs> you know, you're, you, you, you can't get something new because you're so afraid you'll lose what you have. I don't remember exactly how I put it, but, um, and that's the big thing is he's 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 really worried that he'll if he pushes back on the problems in NCIS that he'll lose what he does have, and that there's nothing else. So I think if you give him something solid to support him, a lot of those shenanigans just don't make sense that happened in the show. I don't think he'd put up with it. Anyway, so he's got a sister, and. She gets sick, and he he cares about her deeply at this point. She's they've known each other for a, you know a long time. Um, I want to say by that point it was like eight like a decade that they've known each other. Um, they he's got you know they've got a he you know, Claudia's got a kid. He knows his nephew really well. He spends as much time as he can with his family. Um, they you know he's been through several police departments. 
Um, and then he's at NCIS when Claudia gets sick and Gibbs doesn't want to give him leave of absence. And that's a pivotal decision moment because Tony chooses family over the potential of NCIS. And he'd only been, I think, I had him at NCIS for two or three years at that point. And um, Gibbs said, you can't, you know, you haven't known, this isn't like, and I kind of like had Gibbs being like, this isn't, this is family you've known for only a decade. It can't be that big a deal. And not wanting to give him, you know, Tony wanted to be with Claudia for what life she had left, not just go for her funeral. So Tony kind of double bartered him and left, more or less. Good. Fucker. Um, yeah, I'm mad. <laughs> and it was just, and that was, so I, I, I stepped through, well, what would Tony do if he's got a sister who he really loves and he's being denied, you know, t- taking leave for a few months? I think he would say, fuck you. Now, in the, now, in, if he didn't have that, he would he would not have taken that risk of losing. But he chose. He had a he had two strong forces in his life. He had Claudia and he had Gibbs, and Claudia was the stronger force. He had Claudia and Styles and and Noah, and though that was the stronger force than this thing with Gibbs. So Tony moves on. He becomes. He eventually winds up at the FBI after Claudia dies, and then so I'm like, okay, he's at the FBI. Um, he's not going to be going in there the same Tony who was happy-go-lucky at NCIX. He's just lost the person he cares about most in the world. So he's probably a little bit more serious, but still lighthearted. And then I kind of like worked through the evolution of like, you know, how, how his career would have grown. And that I think that Claudia would have encouraged him to take advancements and stuff and not be trying to stay behind the scenes and being willing to step out and take be in the leadership role. And so I think when he was offered promotions, he took them. And it's a fundamental thing. There are things you can get away with as an individual contributor that you cannot get away with when you're the boss. So I think it logically follows that Tony, a team lead, who's a team lead, is not going to engage in quite as many shenanigans. He might still have a good sense of humor. I think he would, because I think a sense of humor is integral to his personality. But he's not going to be so over the top when he is the boss. He can't be. He'd get fired. So, anyway, that's how I started the whole step through of, like, how would he have evolved? And I took him from where I knew him to be in canon and applied circumstances, you know, external forces creating internal motivation and figured out how his character developed to figure out where he was at the start of my story. Um, There was always one big flaw in the way I developed him, but I just decided, I I knew it was there, but I just let it go. (laughs) um, For the sake of, that I would have had no plot left if I had fixed this one thing. That I won't point out because if sometimes when somebody points out a flaw, then you've never seen it before and you just don't need to know that it's there. Anyway, there will be like 10 billion comments about how, oh, I saw that. I noticed that. I just didn't say anything. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I've known this all along. Or there will be disingenuous comments of like, oh, um, I just noticed that this thing in the story, and and it's really – 
it's really kind of distracting. It's like, really, you just noticed it. <laughs> it seems like just that's just the thing it. I was just talking about. Um, but I did, if I had considered it a fatal flaw, I wouldn't have, like I said, I, I recognized the problem and I went forward with the story anyway. But because if I thought it was a fatal flaw, I wouldn't have left it in. But sometimes you just kind of go, well, realistically, it wouldn't have gone that way. But this is fan fiction, not reality. So, um, Anyway, that's how I step through in a character in the same contemporary thing. What's your process like for? I, um, well, you know, I think I talk about hold my coffee because, um, there's a fundamental change in McKay's character in that the character is now female. Um, and I really had to, to dissect um, McKay and break um, McKay's character down to, to the basics. Um, because while it would have been easy just to say, okay, Rodney's now a girl, and just go, it, it wouldn't have been accurate. Because women and men don't have the same experiences, even if they have the same potential and the same intelligence, the same set of parents, um, they go to the same schools, they don't have the same experiences. And a woman in the sciences is um, an entirely different matter. Where Rodney McKay is... um, allowed to be arrogant and rude and dismissive because in canon he is a cisgendered white male. Meredith McKay is not allowed to be arrogant and rude and dismissive without paying for it. Rodney is often tolerated because of his brilliance. His behavior is tolerated. Meredith's behavior would not have been tolerated in the same fashion. Um, yeah. He's a leader and she's a bitch. women in positions of, of power over other people um, can be abused for it, um, can be lashed out at. And I wanted to explore that. And um, one reason why um, the the physical attack on her happened in Hold My Coffee is because, um, frankly, it happens in reality. That kind of shit goes down in reality. When a man feels threatened by a really intelligent woman, um, who's in a position of power, um, they often lash out physically. Sexual harassment is very much a thing. It happens a lot in the workplace. It's not even that no matter, not even No matter what your job is. And so when you look at McKay, um, Rodney in the sciences and Meredith in the sciences, they're entirely two different animals. And so I had to figure out what I needed to bring from McKay and Cannon into Hold My Coffee beyond the intelligence. Um, and um, where Rodney has some vulnerabilities, uh, Meredith couldn't afford vulnerabilities in the same places. Where Rodney could be socially awkward 
Meredith could not be. Women who are socially awkward are trampled on. She would never have gotten as far as she did and gotten two PhDs if Meredith was socially awkward. It would have been seen as a weakness. It had been blood in the water. I had to figure out where her vulnerabilities were uh, to be different from McKay, from, from, from Rodney, because I had to adjust her circumstances for survival, just like we do every day as women. We adjust our circumstances and our personality and our responses for survival. How do I get through this? just my approach on, on Meredith and getting her to the same place in canon that Rodney was when we meet him because her path to getting there would have been very different. Yeah. Yeah. It couldn't just go down just exactly the same, not with the kind of position that, that she had. And it's one reason why she has a former relationship with the current prime minister of Canada. I'm not saying she hoard her way into her position because she didn't. But his influence did help her. Knowing him helped her. Because mm-hmm. that's the way the world works. What's really interesting is I've also cast that character in my um, in my uh, November story. Uh, he's going to be the representative for Canada in the IOA, um, Owen Trimbley, Trimbley. Um And I was thinking to myself, do I make him a former lover of McKay or not? <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> interesting. If Owen is gay. I'm trying to decide that, you know, as, as I'm moving through my plot. Is is Owen gay in this universe? Because Owen was straight, very straight, in Hold My Coffee. Um, uh, very much, and I was like, okay, do I do I transfer that affection and attraction to Rodney or not? And I decided not to because I don't think that Owen, even if he was gay, would find Rodney attractive. And I was like, why, why am I thinking that? And I still don't know why I think that. It's just, this is, this is what happened in my head. I think that um, that um, it's very likely that someone like Owen Trivoli would find Rodney McKay kind of um, uh, intimidating. Yeah, I think that's probable. Because in Hold My Coffee, there is this undercurrent that Owen really desperately believes that Meredith will eventually come back to him. It's not true, but but he believes it. it it's this... Um, it's like this thing where, you, like, when you, you know sometimes when you meet somebody and, and you're really into them and, and 
um, and you fall in love and you're so desperately in love with them. And it's really difficult to believe that they aren't as in love with you as you are with them. That's where Owen is in in, in Hold My Coffee. And he doesn't, um, he hasn't for a minute considered giving up his career to follow Meredith into her world. Um, But a part of him believes that that she'll do that for him. (laughs) She she won't, but he believes it. And so, you know, um, it's not a threat or a problem. He he isn't going to come back to be a problem for John or or Meredith. But um, I... I, it was important to me to insert some reality into that situation, and and, and that's and that's a circumstance that happens um, where you're just not into somebody who is so deeply into you that they're kind of delusional about it. <laughs> not in an unhealthy, I'm going to pine the rest of my life and um, stalk you kind of way, but he'll um, eventually marry, but she'll be the one that got away. As far as he's concerned. Good, good, because I like that one. I, I didn't want to see him go the tragic path of obsessed stalker. <laughs> no, no, no. I was like, it, it, I was it, like but wait, it, wait to find out if he's going to be awful before you say that you really like him. <laughs> I do. I, I I like the character of Owen. I um, I think Paul Gross is really sexy. Uh, uh, and um, but it was uh. I wanted to give, you know, a lot of times my OCs are, are um, you know, my background OCs aren't very distinct in my brain. But when I conceived Owen, he was very distinct in my brain. And this is a man who, who worked his ass off to become the Prime Minister of Canada. And this is a man who um, is watching the woman he thinks is the love of his life. He could very well be the love of his life. Um go further and further and further away from him to the point where she's not even in the same galaxy and um and he and he lets her go. And so it's, it's not his uh, choice to make. <laughs> right. But it, it, as the leader of her country, he could have interfered to the point where she wouldn't have been in the Stargate program at all. Yeah, but he's not that kind of dick. Otherwise I wouldn't have liked no. him. No. <laughs> he's that kind of dick. But so there is this point where he where he has to acknowledge that um you know that he has to let her go. Um but he's also um still got that intrinsic thing of we're safe. So he sends his personal bodyguard with her to Pegasus. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Take William. <laughs> well, if you're gonna insist on going at least be prepared. <laughs> Have a Canadian Mountie or two. <laughs> or two. But yeah, it's uh I don't know. Uh so, I think evolving yeah. a character from male to female is probably harder. It's probably more work to really do it well than it is to like pull somebody into a completely different setting. Um it would. I mean, if you're, it's almost like if you're going to pull somebody into a completely different setting, you might as well change their gender too, because you're going to be doing um, a lot of work. <laughs> so you might as well just. It like, is a lot of work, and I, but the thing is, a lot of times in fandom, you see these gender bend, they're fixed. That where the, the where the work wasn't done. 
And you're like, yeah. yeah. I mean, I only have written one gender bent story. Um, I did, I did one that was kind of gender bent, but not exactly. Um, but I only did one real one, um, and it was a big short, so it was only like it was, only, it was less than two k. And um, you might, well, no, I usually hit right at the limit on those. It was probably two k. Um, but I had, even though I, I wasn't going to make it into a real story, I had pages and pages of notes. I had more notes on that story. And how the character would have evolved, Tony as a girl, then, then I had words in the story. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and I, I made some decisions to keep Tony as close to recognizable personality as possible. Because I agree that in a lot of cases, women, depending upon their circumstances, are just not even going through the exact same life events. They're not going to come out the same as if they were a guy. Uh, you know, uh, you know, biology aside, it's just not going to be the same. But in that case, um, I decided to put her in a very protected position where she had a lot of privilege in her life that would insulate her from a lot of scarring events beyond what she'd already experienced, which was, you know, the decisions I had written in was that she um, uh, and I think because it was a theme, a girl um, that when their sister died, when, when in, in my universe, uh, Tony's mother's always named Claire. So when Claire died, because it was a, it was a, it was a girl who didn't remind them of Denozo, because it's my head canon that, that Claire's brothers hated, um, Denozo, uh, that they were invested in, in getting her, bringing her back to England. And so she was raised in England and she was adopted by her uncle, who she called dad. I mean, eventually that was her father, was the uncle who raised her from the time she was eight, who in the course of her life became the prime minister of England. So she's the adopted daughter of England's prime minister working for Interpol. And so she's in a very... Like, part of the reason why she's at Interpol is because, like, literally nobody wants to touch her. <laughs> like, that's the <laughs> prime minister's daughter. We're not fucking with her. No, she cannot work for MI5. No. Um, so she has been in a very privileged position most of her life, and it allowed me to keep a lot of the, I would call it, like, take some of Tony's um, humor and turn it more into sass um, to keep her a little bit more recognizable as Tony. But that was like mm-hmm. in a 2K story. Um, but she also isn't going to be putting up with shit from anybody because that's not the life. That's not, I mean, she's grown up in a very um, privileged position in her life. She doesn't, that's why when Gibbs tries to physically intimidate her by getting in her space, she calls him on it because she's not going to be physically intimidated by anybody. So, and then, but then I decided to, and the other, I said the other thing I did was kind of a gender bend, but not exactly, is Alex, and Alex Shepard that is raised by the Shepherds is an original character. It is not Tony DeNozo because there's no Tony backstory to draw from. There's no Tony. But I do think of them as the same person under the hood. So I try to figure out the core personality traits. So I tried, decided to write Alex Shepard, Raised by the Shepherd as a girl. That was a completely different exercise 
Yeah, it's completely different. <laughs> I can see how it would be. Especially since she was a, she was a sentinel from a young age, um, a female sentinel from a young age who became a SEAL. So she's not – she was a very different – it didn't feel like – it was a little bit like doing a gender bend since Alex Shepard is, is – as an OC, Alex Shepard would be male um, because he's derived from Tony Donoso. So to me it was a little bit like – a gender bend, but not exactly, because how do you gender bend an original character? I mean, I don't know. It was a strange thing. Uh, but, yeah, she's complete, She's very different. She's the least like Tony of anything I've written. Um, because she's the strongest sentinel in her family. Um, she's also she's the head of multiple SEAL fire teams. She's the unit commander for her, her SEAL um, her SEAL team, she's the commander. So she's just in a very different position and she's a complete hard ass. So it's very she's very much not at all like Tony Donoso. All the people like to remind me a lot that Alex Shepard is Tony Donoso, which Yeah, I think, I think for I think that's for their own benefit though. So they can connect to the character. Because a lot that of people be. um shy away from an O. C. Um and when I first introduced an OC, um, it will probably be Sean and Declan and what might have been. Um, I think that Sean came before Matt, maybe. Matt Shepard might have been first, actually. But people were hesitant to to read um, when I put the OC tag on, you know, and I was like, and then I would get comments like, "Wow, your original characters are so interesting and good." Like it was rare, and I was like, "Is is is that really rare in fandom, or is that just people making assumptions based on one experience?" Yeah. And then you know, I think it boils down <laughs> to the whole Mary Sue thing. Oh, I don't read it. Yeah, yeah, I don't like Mary Sue. But to see, I mean, those weren't even main characters, really. Um, no, Matt really if, didn't come if, into his own as main character until Ties That Bind, when I actually gave him his own um, short story in that series. Yeah. Well, the I understand where the um, aversion to OCs came from. I mean, I... I I've been around Phantom long enough to remember all the the flood of stories where there was an OC who magically fixed everything. And that was the Mary Sue phenomenon. Um, and and the reason why people don't like that, it, it's perfectly understandable, is they're reading fan fiction because they want to read stories about their character that they love being awesome. Not about a character they have no clue who it is, coming in and saving the day and solving everything with a flip of their hair um, and without breaking their heels. It, it's, it's jarring. It's like the savior of them. And all of a sudden, all of the awesomeness is in this original character who feels plastic. Anyway, she feels like a Barbie. And so people started getting uptight about it. Now, I understand that. I do, because I wouldn't want to read that either. But nobody has the right to tell authors what they can and can't do. 
if an author wants to write that, they should have been able to write that without being shamed. But on the other hand, authors need to own what the fuck you're doing. You know, um, you can't call it like a, you know, Tony-centric fan fiction if it's really about uh, an OC who solved everything just by walking through. And and so I, I can understand people don't, they're like, hey, I want to read a story about Tony. I want to read a story about, or I want to read a story about John and Rodney. I don't want to read a story that is about this original character who feels fake. So that's both a failing of characterization, but always the solution should have always been hit the X and go back and find something else to read. Don't create these arbitrary rules where we built this whole, cult, whole whole culture around having to declare that you're using an OC and um, and then you have to put notes in saying it's not a Mary Sue and it's just it gets and then we can't have female OCs at all. I mean, it just got to be ridiculous. People's knee jerk reaction turned into this. Um, there's like a penalty for writing original characters. And so people have this knee jerk and I see authors apologizing for putting in an OC. It's like, I really have to write an OC in this. There's no canon character that can, I can slot in to handle this thing. It's a really tiny role and they're apologizing for it. And it's like, well, yeah, you should use an OC if you need them. My God, but people apologize. I'm sorry. I have to use an OC for some of this. So, I mean, if you want to write a story about an original character with the fandom characters as backdrop for your OC, then you, people just need to be upfront about that. And if people don't want to read it, they need to learn how to close the browser without demonizing someone's choices. Um, <laughs> I got an interesting piece of feedback this week. <laughs> I was like... <laughs> I got really tickled. She was reading, she started, I guess, reading um, Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond, and she responded to the first episode with, I cringe every time Harry gets special treatment or is called Lord Potter. I told her that she should stop reading. (laughs) (laughs) She should. Harry gets Lord Potter all over that story. You might want to give that up right now. I think to myself, why? Why? But she wasn't a member, so she had to log into um, one of her social media accounts on my site in order to comment. Um, why did she feel the need to log in to tell me this? I don't care. I mean, it tickled me, but I don't care. So I'm like, I, and that I was, don't even. And that was the sum total of the comment, too. It wasn't like that there was a compliment that she's not telling. You know, that was it. That was, that was it. That was it. No, that, was, that was the whole I really, comment. I cringe when this happens. It's like, wow, that's, that's I, don't, I don't even know what story it was, but there's only a few stories where he's Lord Potter, and it's all over it. So what the fuck are you still reading? Um. When you see something you don't like, when I get into a story where there's an, a, a plastic, you know, two-dimensional OC who's who's got most of the screen time, I just close it and move on. Um, I was thinking to myself, well, what is she expecting from me here? Does she want me to apologize for the construction of my story? Um, does she want me to defend just, my choice? 
I mean, but she just I don't wants know you to know that there are people out there who don't like that. I mean, well, I just, for me to reconsider is, my choices next time, and I got news for y'all, I will never get tired of Lord Potter. <laughs> ever. I, I hope you ever. never, ever do. I, I'm not tired it of it. It is my favorite trope. I am never getting tired of it. No. I'll be Lord Pottering when I'm 80. <laughs> you know, the thing is, is that I feel like some people want you to know, they do want you to know that there are, you know, people, put the air quotes around it, who didn't like the choice you made and that you might have, and I guess the idea is that you might have more readers if you made different choices and that you weren't pleasing all of the audience with the choices you made. As if I, as if you were making money on this, as if, I, I mean, the thing is, there is this perception, and we've talked about this in another podcast because of a comment that was made in a writer's group, there, but there is this perception that readers are currency, that readership is a form of currency, and and therefore, if you're not pleasing your readership, you're like losing out on on the comp on the on the on the on the what? There, folks, it's all there's nothing there. I mean, this is the emperor's new clothes. There's nothing there. <laughs> Look, if I wanted a bigger readership, I'd post on Ao3. I'd post yeah. on Fanfiction.net. If I posted on Fanfiction.net, I'd be queen over there. <laughs> yeah, you would. I'm just saying. She would cry if she wanted. If she was worried about that kind of shit about the readership currency, she'd be posting her cross posting and her announcements of her fix and all the groups on Facebook. She'd be members of all the groups that with their specialty ships and going in and posting that she posted a story and publicizing it to hell and gone. The thing is, the, 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 there's nothing there. It, it, it's nothing. Basically, people are talking about it. By readers, they mean you'll get more comments. What comments like this? The thing is, you're never going to please everybody, and that's the truth. There will always be somebody who would rather have – if she left off Lord Potter, there would always be people who would rather have read Lord Potter. So does every dissatisfied voice get to come in? And by the time all of the people get what they want, there's nothing left. That's just – so I cannot like please. To satisfy me. That's right. And fuck them. In the immortal words of Carrie Fisher – because there is no currency. They, they, it's like somebody has invented this. Uh, they, they've presented it as a concept of, like, you have to please your readership. For what? What are they going to do if they don't like the choice you made? What are they going to do? Go read somebody else? They were already going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's I don't not like these bitches are- that my readers just read me. I- right. They're already reading other people. It's not like you know, it's not like you're you're got the the market lock uh, you know lock on Harry Potter. And if you don't hurry up and get a story out that's going to please your readers, they're going to go find another Harry Potter author to read. I'm sorry, they're already reading other Harry Potter authors. I mean, that's why we remember plots sometimes, and we can't even pinpoint what author put them together because we're reading so much so quickly that. It just, it all starts to become conflated together into this kind of blob of that week I lost to Harry Potter. 
<laughs> I, I, I lost a week to Harry Potter fandom. I'm, I'm back up for air. What's next? <laughs> uh, people are I've always more than a week. On. And but there yeah. was no, you know, I, I promise you, me reading whoever I read that week that I lost to Harry Potter or months that I lost to Harry Potter, there was no currency. There was nothing about my readership that was in any way, shape, or form currency. I wasn't feeling it. I wasn't feeling like a commodity at all. I wasn't like like going, sitting there thinking, oh, you're going to lose me as a reader if you keep doing this. (laughs) What an arrogant thing to think that they should change their writing choices because I might not be a reader if they don't. Well, who the fuck, what's the fuck about special about my eyeballs moving across the screen? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) It's just so silly. It's just so silly. I, you know, and I was like, the thing is, is that uh, I don't advertise in groups and I don't advertise on Live Journal or Dream Width, really. I have my own Dream Width, and sometimes I've. Remember to post to it. Sometimes I don't. And I think my website automatically posts to Tumblr, but I'm not really sure because I don't tumble well. Um, it automatically posts to my Twitter and my Facebook um, page, and that's it. And um, so I don't actively seek new readers. Uh, but there is a Harmony group out there that I recently joined because someone was talking about me in it. And. <laughs> And I wanted to get in there and talk about about myself too, um, and um, so I've gained a, a, a quite a few um, new readers from this group uh, because I was brought up by the by somebody, and then there was a discussion, and so I have all these people coming to read, um, and um, sometimes there's comments like. Uh, like someone made a comment on that old black match that that they that they really wished that this premise had been written as Harry and Hermione because they love the idea but they don't read Slash. And I responded, I don't care, because I don't care. <laughs> yeah, I don't care. And then someone respond, and then someone actually complained about the legacy because there wasn't um any harmony in it. It's not labeled harmony. Oh, people. It's not labeled Harry Hermione in any single way. Because it isn't about them. And then they asked me if um, the book two would be about um, them meeting. And I'm like, no. Book two will be about James Potter handling his business. And hunting down Voldemort. Because that's the whole point of that story. Him protecting his son. It isn't about Harry. It's a, James is about Harry, but the story is about James. Yeah, it's James' story. And that's and that was perfectly clear. I thought so too, but people are, you know, it it's isn't like I mislabeled it. No, it's just again people coming in with their expectations and going, but but you know, it's funny. There was, I, I don't remember, well, I, I won't say, actually I won't say, but there, I talked about, I'm, we talk about stories all the time, and I, I the, the rec section on my site is woefully out of date, and we did 
the fanfic Palooza in the month of August. Uh, that was that was a beast. Posting a story every day, you wouldn't think it'd be that hard, but I just felt like I couldn't be limited to a week. But maybe a month was a bit much. Um, I really enjoyed anyway, it. I got to read some things that I fun. read a long time ago that forgot about. I'm, I'm looking forward to it next year. <laughs> I am too. I've decided we'll just do it in August every year. But I, I kept my list of, of stuff. I'm gonna take everything I wrecked on sick Vampic Palooza, and I'm gonna put it on my site because I'm like, if I'm bothering to put it on Facebook, I need to put it on my own website as a wreck. Um, but between the podcast and and wrecks on Facebook and stuff, we put like a lot of wrecks out there recently, and. My reading list from Fanfic Palooza is still it is still off the page. Like it just I put links in it. <laughs> I don't think I'm ever gonna catch up because people put so many interesting stories up that I'd never read. Um so I have but when I'm like when I'm in the mood for that fandom I've got a long list of stuff to get to. But um I like to comment on a story that I'd wrecked and then I guess someone else had read it after I wrecked it. And they left a comment, and I guess they got into a conversation with the author about what, how did you hear about the story. And they said that they'd heard about it from me. And they went back, and the author replied to my comment and said, I understand you wrecked my story, and I just wanted to thank you or something like that. Um, because I've gotten a big boost of readers, and I just wanted to thank you. And that was very sweet of her to say. I don't know. I mean, I guess it was a bit of a mystery, maybe, if, if her story hadn't had a lot of feedback or a lot of readership in a while. All of a sudden, she had a big boom of it. She would wonder now, where that curious. was coming from. I'd, I'd be, be curious, curious too. Yeah. It's like, where, why is this story suddenly getting hit when it's never has before? I see why she'd be curious, but she didn't owe me thanks. I mean, it was a very nice gesture. And the reason is because um, – we do right if we like a story we tell people go read this and a good story deserves readership and I don't just recommend authors who are polite to me the only time I would not recommend a story I would not tell people to read a story is if I found out that the author was paid to write it because I have I don't care how good it is if I find out that an author was was wrote that story on commission if it's fan fiction um I would never recommend it I would not no, me neither but send anybody to that person. I have a hard time not bashing them on the internet as it is, and I'm not going to support. Because um, the thing is, they're getting their commissions from their readers, and this is a case of where readership is currency, and I'm not going to put readers in their path. And it has become an issue in fandom lately that people are trying to sell their fan fiction. Um, anyway, that's a whole other I issue. Get the, but, I get the economy of shit. Um, but you need to respect Sia fandom um, because you're putting us all at risk. Yeah. We're allowed to do this because you're not taking money. You're not dipping into the, the money that should go to the authors. They own that their intellectual property. And when you start making money on it, and if people make the argument that um, – well, I, I won't have time for fan fiction if I if I if I can't sell it or whatever. It's like okay, fine. you don't have time for fan fiction. <laughs> I mean, I, right. I, we're not heartbroken about this. That's that's the same boat for all of us. If you, if it's it's a spare time thing for everybody, you are no special case. There are a lot of broke people out there writing fan fiction. So, um, and those of us who read it, who get all that free entertainment, 
We support websites for web fees and stuff, you know, whether it's private authors who have website and overhead, like um, Rough Trade. Um, well, that's not an author site. Rough Trade is a challenge site. Um, Wild Hair Project for the archives. I support AO3, you know. I don't necessarily agree with everything that they allow on AO3, but I sure do get a fuck ton of entertainment off of AO3, so I send them money. Um, yeah, I do too. Because their bandwidth bill must be outrageous. outrageous. <laughs> I can't even imagine. Can't even I, imagine. I deal with the crazy ads on fanfiction.net because that's how they make their money. And you know, it's just, but you don't sell your you don't sell your things. But the idea, as long as somebody's not selling their story outside of that, you know, um, if them getting if me recommending the story got them more comments or more readers, I think that is great. But the re, there's nothing that's actual currency about readership. There's nothing about it. There's no real currency there because more readers might mean more comments. It doesn't mean it's going to be good comments. <laughs> there is no one-to-one relationship there. <laughs> I've talked about this before about there are some, um, and this is actually true in professional circles as well. Um, there are, you know, there are two kinds of writers. Um, there are writers who write for themselves and there are writers who write for attention. Um, and to them, comments and readership is currency. Um, it's a special kind of narcissism and that creative people um, can cultivate where um, comments and attention like that, no matter negative or positive, feeds a monster inside. That's why they ask for your feedback. That's why they try to blackmail you for feedback. That's why they try to involve you in their writing process and ask you to um, tell them where to go next and um, ask them, you know, ask you what kind of pairing you want. They're they're um, they're vampires, <laughs> and, they and they're feeding. They're, they're feeding on their readers. So they will do anything they can to get more readers, including writing something that makes no sense. Or plagiarizing I, best, somebody. Or plagiarizing somebody. I mean, the best choice is to be true to you. And the people who want to read, who are looking for that thing, if it's a rare pair, a, a, a rare fandom, small fandom, I mean, you, you might be writing, you might just be so inspired to write this story that there are six readers for, you know, because it's something so unknown that nobody's, nobody's looking for it. But for those people who are looking for it, for those six people who are right there in the fandom space with you, you, you will be the best thing to them ever. And you may not get 600 comments, but to those, you, you are so appreciated by those six people, whoever they are, wherever they are, whatever the pairing, whatever the thing is. So People act like it's the amount of comments or whatever. I mean, can you imagine? You have wanted a pairing forever. You see the potential. It's a small pairing or a really rare pair. And finally somebody writes it and they write it well. I mean, it's just like, oh, my God, it's like my fandom dreams have come true. It's just it would be an amazing thing. So you do you and don't let people convince you that readership is currency because they are giving that message out 
that you have to pan, you have to pander to your readership, that you have to make them happy. When they give you feedback on what they don't like, you need to take that into account. And you don't. There's because nope. it really this truly is the emperor's new clothes. There is nothing there. My eyeballs moving across the screen isn't anything. It's nothing. Well, it would be gross if your eyeballs actually did that. I love it when you're literal. It kind of just, I kind of like just got a, like, my heart fluttered. I feel like the stirrings of a crush. <laughs> I won't tell your wife. <laughs> Thank you. For the record, your gaze moves, not your eyeballs. It is true, but my eyeballs actually are, my eyeballs are moving in my head. <laughs> and it feels like they're moving across the screen sometimes. But one of yes, the most I pre- horrifying things I ever read, um, it was in a Harlequin Desire. Um, his eyes roamed all over her body. And I'm like, what, really? <laughs> like, gross, dude. <laughs> get get, get her eyes off, back get in your head. Okay, his so somebody gaze. had a question. Oh, go what, ahead. what? As in his oh, gaze. Was oh, go ahead. But go ahead. Yes, the gaze, the Roman gaze. That is a very important. It is an important distinction. But about the gaze is like it's not like body parts doing things on their own. You know, it's like really, it's like you move your hand. Your hand doesn't go do things on its own. Um, <laughs> but. But yeah, uh, but there's there's no people's people's gazes are not currency. They're interested in currency. We like comments, okay? So we have this perception that comments are currency. Um, but more readers doesn't necessarily equate to more comments. I've seen the back end stats, folks. Sometimes the most read story on the site is definitely not the most commented on. You'd think it would be, but it's not. So readership, it's not a one-to-one thing. There's, we make false equivalencies because it, it makes us feel like there's a formula to get more comments. Um, just relax. Do what you want to do right within you to write and let it happen. It'll happen when it happens. Anyway, so the comment, uh, the comment the question earlier was, I copied it somewhere, um, it was a question about bringing a fandom from a, a character from a, from another fandom when that fandom is from a different timeline or a wildly different universe, such as in space or futuristic. If your va- base fandom is fantasy to start with as opposed to contemporary, and you can use magic or science as the method for new character entry, how do you blend the new character, making them in character, but still fit the new circumstances? Um, and that's a little bit, I, at least I... I inter- way I interpret that question, and um, uh, look, you see the person who asked. The person who asked that's still in the chat. So if I'm interpreting that wrong, that's that's a little bit like what we talked about with the Sunrider example. Um, if you read NCIS, I, I do highly recommend. You haven't read that story. I do highly recommend that anybody who's looking at an example of how to adapt a character to a whole new world read that story, even if Trek's not your thing and NCIS is not your thing. Um, you do need to know the NCIS characters a little bit, though, to understand how they've adapted. But that's exactly what Sunrider did. It takes me from a contemporary fandom and a bunch of characters, the whole cast, as a matter of fact, and put them 
on a starship in the future where and they didn't time travel they just that was their universe she was you know doing a, a universe fusion and she did it brilliantly um it's a fantastic so, story. I highly, yeah, I, I recommend it as well. If you're fan, and so one of the things, one of the things that it would help to know. Oh, girl, she's she's a Trekkie and a Tony fan. Yeah, so girl, read that story. Um, it help would help to. Know you're gonna dig it. The, yeah, you will. If for this question is, are you? Does your characters? Is your character moving into that new fandom where that their old life existed, or did they always exist in this new fandom? Because it's different. If the character always, if like it, like what Sunrider did, is those characters always existed in the Star Trek universe. NCIS universe didn't exist. But if your character, oh, and is he coming from the future? Like, is he time traveling? Or... Have you put the events of Doom in the timeline of Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Is it like the future of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and there's time travel involved? Or is John just growing up on the Hellmouth? Because that's... It's really two different things if John has his canon backstory and he's time traveling to be in Buffy versus John who is raised on the Hellmouth. That's a completely different thing. He's pulled in by a portal, so it's John Grimm. Okay. Um, that's a, now, that, that's the easier thing to do. Your character is pulled, like literally pulled by magic from their universe where they form their personality and pulled into a new universe. And he's already got the C24 um, chromosome. So, so you know, basically John packed off his emotional baggage and came with him to the portal. Yeah. He, <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. So he is John, and he's coming through the portal. And now you've got to figure out the ripple effect, not just your plot ripples, but you've got character ripples to figure out now because John's going to develop knew from this point differently than he would if he was still in the Doom universe. But um, moreover, he will influence the characters in Buffy. Yes, very much so. So he becomes um, an external motivator. He's an external force that creates um, both probably external and internal motivation for people, depending upon how he's interacting with them. So that will change how he develops the character. It will change how they develop as characters. I mean, it's not one stone in the pond that ripples. It's lots of stones thrown, lots of little ripples, because they interact and, with each other and cause new ripples. And also, he's a great deal older than your characters. Um, strikes me as more like the responsible adult. <laughs> I don't know how they were how old they were at the end of the series because I didn't watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, uh, end of the series, they were, they were out of college ish. So, oh. yeah, by end of end of the series was late college years, I think. So, um, Xander's twenty eight. Okay, so he's full. He's a he's a grown ass man. Um, but he isn't the grown ass man that John Grimm is. <laughs> no, John. <laughs> John 
John Grimm is a grown ass man. He <laughs> <It> is grown. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, so that's a case of where you're not so much like um, you're starting from canon and just letting his character evolve through your plot. Now, if you were having John be a character who grew up on the Hellmouth and went to school with Buffy and and um, not not Buffy, but Xander and Willow and Jesse, that would be a very different characterization exercise than, you know, Sam and John grew up on the Hellmouth than pulling him from his fandom via magic. Because when you're pulling him from his fandom via magic, he comes intact with all of the John Grimness. And you don't have to worry about trying to figure out what is the core of the character and how to preserve that when all of that bark basically didn't develop the same way. The, the external trappings didn't develop the same way. The masks, the defenses, none of that would be the same if you grew up in a different environment. I think he would also be furious um, to be pulled out of his world into a new one. Um, it's good that you're bringing his sister because if he was pulled away from his sister, he'd be homicidal. Yeah. Willow wouldn't last for long. <laughs> Because at the end of Doom, he's really, he's finally connected with her, um, and they're a family again, and they're, I remember that scene in the elevator when, and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, yeah, and he's carrying her. Yeah. And I'm and, like, yeah. And he, and well, in lieu of his sister, he's had his, his, his team all these years, and now he's lost all of them, so She's it. I mean, he, he, he's yeah. going to have a lot of his baggage firmly attached to her because he finally gets her back after but he lost that everybody loss. else. But he lost every he lost everything else in his life in the process of getting her back. I mean, they're not. It's not because he got her back, but she was the sole survivor, and he probably is so grateful for that of the thing that took away everything he loved. So, and his humanity. Yeah. So he'd be really adrift. I would think, and yeah, but uh, actually, considering his weirdness, the Hellmouth isn't a bad place for him to go because he's going to be surrounded by people who are um, have have humanity struggles too. <laughs> <laughs> so at least that respect. And it also depends on what political circumstances uh, Willow pulled him away from. Um, was he in danger of being imprisoned by his government? Um, were they trying to experiment on him? Was he on the run? Um, on the run protecting his sister who had information that could make more of him? Um, you know, there's, Is he there's, the there's, only there's, thing left of C24? Right. So, you know, it, Willow could be actually um, a source of rescue for John in, in that circumstance. So maybe he wouldn't be totally furious with her as long as he got his sister. Yeah. And there would probably be a little bit of codependence in that that whole brother sister thing. Oh, from the elevator. Oh, yeah. So she could she he could see that as a good thing, depending upon how what his frame of mind is at the time. Um, a good thing. Or it could be. Mean, what the fuck? What next? <laughs> I won. Yeah, I'm done. 
and what the fuck either is this? His, but he, you got to remember where I think one of the things that's interesting there is that um, John was already smart, but one of the things C twenty four was supposed to do was make him much smarter. So it it wouldn't take him long. Some characters might take them a little bit, a little while to think through all the permutations of is this good, is this bad. What would have been the consequences for me back home? John should be, even though he's just come out of a crisis situation, he should be able to think through those issues just rapid fire. Right. Because I agree. He's different. He's different. He should be much, much smarter than everybody around him, probably including his sister. Because that's what the that's what the gene did, is it made them more. Yeah, that is such a traumatic moment to have to go through, being pulled through a dimensional portal. He's not going to react well. <laughs> yeah, he's going to come out swinging. At least that's how I would write him coming out swinging because he it's going to be an adrenaline pump and he's still primed to protect his sister. Yeah. And can I say that I'm really glad they made her his sister? Yes. Yes. Instead of some bitter ex-girlfriend. It really made me happy when I realized she was his sister. And I was like, thank you. Also, stories, movies where just the boy and the girl live. Uh, I, I'm so over that, where it's just the couple that live. But I was just totally fine with a brother and sister being the only ones. <laughs> Which is, it's the same makeup, but I just it's different. I really enjoyed the family vibe and the um, them working through their differences and and her just knowing that 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 the thing wouldn't turn him into a monster that he was so that she knew that her brother was just intrinsically good and he wouldn't become something dangerous to her and that she trusted him and um trusted him to get her out of that. And it was just, it was really nice to, to see that relationship where um, she wasn't treated like some bitter ex-girlfriend bitch. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I really enjoyed that all, brother. So. He would be posturing about her through the whole movie and that would have been really tedious. And, uh. So I liked the fact that she was, you know, gorgeous, um, and smart and accomplished and his sister. Yes. <laughs> um, but some people are going to be taking their characters and having them either grow up or in a, in a completely different universe that is dramatically different. Um, or, Fusing them into a world, like fusing worlds together, where the world rules change quite a bit. Like, for instance, if you were to write a story where the Stargate's been declassified, um, that's going to have a Stargate declassification would have a a, a quite it would be like a like a gong going off through law enforcement. So, if you were writing like a contemporary, you know, law enforcement drama fandom, and then you're fusing it with Stargate and the Stargate's been declassified, I'm pulling this example out of my ass, folks. I am, I have not read this. Okay. Your character, it can't be a nothing to your main character. So let's say your main character are the, 
um, the, the Hawaii Five-O guys, okay? Let's say those are your main characters. The Stargate declassification would not have been a nothing in their world. It wouldn't have been a nothing to the military. It wouldn't have been a nothing to the law, to law enforcement because people were, were going to react badly. Um, no matter how carefully they did it, there would be problems, and there would be repercussions to law enforcement as a result of that. Anything that's dramatic and world-changing, like aliens arriving at our doorstep, is going to be like a sonic boom in any kind of civil service uh, law enforcement, you know, like first responders, police, that kind of thing, um, military. And if you're writing in the military fandom, crime drama, whatever, and you have that kind of overlay, it, it would have changed the progression of events if you keep the timeline intact. So at the Stargate, let's say, was declassified in 2004, and you're writing um, Hawaii Five-0 in – 2010, the world would be looked different. Their life as law enforcement officers would have been different. Maybe not dramatically different, but there still should be changes that you're accounting for that are going to affect them personally, that you need to figure out what that's done to their characterization and how it would have changed them. I think one of the major issues in New York after the Avengers for the police would have been keeping civilians from picking up alien technology. Yeah. That's why I decided to write that whole thing with the Sentinel keeping the perimeter for several weeks after the Battle of New York was because um, how do they deal with that? I mean, they also don't want alien bodies being carted off, right? You don't right? want mad, <laughs> mad scientists running around with alien DNA. Especially in the Marvel Universe. It's just not a good idea. <laughs> What the so, fuck happened? I mean, I think one of the flaws that happens, one of the, well, not, it's not a flaw, but where, where, where you run into problems is people go, this thing happened back here, and I'm in my contemporary fandom, and it's all the same as in canon up until this point. Straining credulity a bit. Both on, a, on an event, from an event perspective, and events in canon, as well as the characterization. So, like I said, something as major as Stargate declassification or the Battle of New York with alien invasion, the Chitauri invasion, that would have – it changes the course of the world from that point forward. So for you to be six years in the future in your fandom and say that nothing occurred any differently, like I said, my, my disbelief is teetering on the edge. Mine's on the floor. It, it had a great fall. <laughs> it, it's all, it, I, Mike's still on the turret because sometimes, like, man, maybe depending upon how you do it, but usually it's like, is Humpty Dumpty about to have a great fall? And when someone's suicide, when someone's disbelief, utterly suicide, and there's just nowhere to go except the X button. <laughs> it's like, I just can't. I can't deal. I can't. Sorry. Not Sorry. Well, yeah, you know these kind of events um, in in a, in the fandom should ripple, should have ramifications, um, should be um, should impact your characters, um, their paths, their their future. Um, Pearl Harbor shaped the world <laughs> and changed the course of a war. 
And I would put declassification of the Stargate program right up there at Pearl Harbor. Yeah, there would be problems, and it would be, and it wouldn't be like a little. It wouldn't be a murmur, like I said. It'd be a sonic boom. I gloss over it. Settle down in, in um, what might have been, because I didn't want to write um all that angsty uh stuff, uh. But it's there in the background. It's there in the way that McKay has twenty four hour security and how he lives basically in a compound now. Um, it's yeah. there in the fact that they that they can't put their kid in um public school. Um, it's just there in the background. It's it you know, it's Sebastian's um ride home with two Marines. <laughs> <laughs> Only two. <laughs> Only yeah. two. Okay. Oh, we got to run in nineteen seconds. <laughs> you guys have Whoa. a great week, and we'll talk to you later. Say good night, Jilly. Good night, everyone. <laughs>